Hello, church. There are four living creatures around the throne, and day and night, they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Even as I say those words, I see some of you nodding. I see others of you mouthing those words. We know them, not only because they're in Scripture, but because we've sung them, just as those four living creatures sing them, and in some sense, even as we sing these words, we proclaim them not only by speaking them or reading them, but something different happens as we sing them. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Let us pray. God, your word is eternal and true. It precedes us, stretching back to the foundations of time. We remember as we meet you in this moment that it was by your word and by your spirit that you breathed life into all things and that you breathe life into us even now. So come and meet us as we open your word and hear from it as we join our hearts and our minds and our voices together to declare your holiness. Move us toward you even as you have moved toward us in Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to speak these words with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You might need some practice, so we'll do it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and, your, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on the earth. And so we say together, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so we say together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Stretching back through time, the people of God have received these words, have claimed these words, have owned these words, and with various melodies have sung these words. Sensing, taking their cue from John's writing in the words that we have just shared together, that these were words not only to be read silently off a page or to be heard spoken as we've read them just now, but to be sung, words to express adoration, words to declare and exalt the reign of God, the sovereignty of God, words to offer praise to God, holy, 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 the people of God have always said and say today, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These words stir something up in us, should anyhow. But if you're like me, I suspect many of us were nurtured in the cradle of the restoration tradition and churches of Christ. We have an expression and an experience of faith that is guarded by two guide rails. On the one hand, we prize Scripture. Thanks be to God. We cherish Scripture. Some have written in our own history as the church's sole guide and authority to life and faith and worship. We prize Scripture. It's a good thing. But we've held scripture in a particular kind of way, and that's that guide rail on this one side, highly rational and logical. This is more of a mind thing than a heart thing. So on the one side, our faith has been expressed in a very rational engagement with scripture. It's one guardrail of our tradition. On the other side, we have de-emphasized the work of the Spirit, frankly. Constraining it to that rational engagement with Scripture. If you need evidence of this, since we're um, spending some time these two weeks with hymns, do you remember the one, um, Break Thou the Bread of Life? It's about Scripture. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. And we sang in church, at least the church I grew up, in the hymn book that we used, because when I was growing up, there were hymn books. That may be news to some of you younger. <laughs> there were hymn books. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou did break the loaves beside the sea. And we sang, within the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. It's a good sentiment, except for the fact that that's not the way the hymn was written originally. Did you know this? that the line originally, and you can find still in many uh, hymnals, is not within the sacred page, it's beyond the sacred page. Did you know this? Think about that subtle shift. That as we took this hymn up to sing it in our own life and tradition and faith, we thought, beyond the sacred page, oh no, <laughs> that sounds a little risky. 
So why don't we just sing within the sacred page, right? Guardrails. On the one hand, a commitment to Scripture and its guidance. It's a good thing. It's our foundation, the Word of God. A very rational engagement with Scripture. And on the other, a de-emphasis of the Spirit that God might move and speak to us, not only within the, the page, but even beyond it, if we pay attention. Listen closely. We've resisted both. And um, perhaps that's expressed in some of the ways that um, I felt, I experienced as a child growing up in church. And I'm speaking about my own experience, thinking that it translates to some of your, your own. If it doesn't, well, then my apologies. You can hear a little bit of my story. And I'm speaking about it in a deeply appreciative way. It is the tradition and it is the experience that formed faith and, and calling for me through the life of the church. But man, if you expressed ex emotion in church, you were probably visiting. <laughs> we knew that guy, that gal that showed up and during the hymns did this. Everybody looked around and thought, I don't know who that is. If you were um, a person who expressed your faith and life and worship emotively, you were in the minority in my experience. And if you were that kind of person, you had to work really hard to keep that hand down. It's like, mm. And then even when we would encourage expressions like this, we'd have to find ways to trick ourselves into thinking it was okay. Like, I remember hearing, um, you know what? If you are moved as we, as we worship together, as we pray, as we lift our voices in song to raise your hand, it's okay. Think of it like God's asking, who's on my team? And you're raising your hand. You know, we had to trick ourselves into that. Look, I share these things because what I believe is that these words offered to us in Revelation 4 that we've just proclaimed and sung together have power. They are powerfully transcendent, move and to shape us. And that to take up these words is to find that something wells up inside us akin to what Paul describes. Remember when Paul wrote in, to the Romans, he said, we know that the whole creation has been groaning right up to the present time in anticipation of something. This idea that he's not just talking about persons, people, but the whole creation, it's, it's trembling, it's groaning, it's longing. There's something deep within the foundations of the created order that, that longs for something more. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And then he says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await something, something more. As we await the hope, something like what Paul describes when he says, just after this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our 
weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groans. The whole creation groans. We are self-grown. Even when we're not certain of what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit intercedes with, uh, for us with groans. We are all of us searching for something deeper. I want to take a, just a pause right there because I believe it's true. And we're, all at, we're not all at the same place in our life, in our journey, in our faith. Our experiences are varied. But look, what I believe to be true is that we are all of us longing for something deeper. And that's expressed in different ways through the uniqueness of our person. But we are all of us longing for something that transcends the limits of who we are and what we know. Something that wells up within us. Something more than we know how to express something more than what appears before us. It's the mystery of life. Yesterday was my birthday. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I don't mean to center myself there, but yesterday was my birthday, and I had a moment. I was out doing some things outside, and the sky was clear and blue, and the clouds were suspended in animation. I was just struck by the mystery of life. And I thought, with gratitude, thank you, God, for the gift of this many years to travel around the sun and to experience the gift of life, not to be taken for granted. It's a mystery. That there's something we receive that's beyond us, and maybe that's what's captured by this word that these four living creatures speak for us. Holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. Holy, other. I don't know what all the other is, but it's other. It's transcendent. It's beyond us, and we long for that. I don't want a God made in my own image. The limits of my own understanding. I want a God who's bigger than that. We long for that, and so we sing, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because the words, not only spoken but sung, are more than they would be otherwise. You think about this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was a formless and empty void, which means that sort of um, Hebrew word has the connotation of chaos. I mean, nothing's connected or has form or order. And then it says that the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the deep, which is interesting. You've got the deep, the abyss, which sounds like some kind of form of something, but the Spirit of God hovers over that. The word for spirit is also wind or breath. The Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the deep, and then God said, speaks, God breathes through words and spirit and there is life and order and goodness. You notice that to speak or to sing, it requires 
breath. We speak words through breath, and that the word for breath is spirit, and that when we do this in unison, we are, we are speaking and breathing, and the spirit is speaking and breathing through us something that transcends us. We long for this deeply. Sometimes I think that we suppress that longing, or we try and appease that longing. I want to invite us this morning in just the next few minutes to stand inside the vision that offers us this song and these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I want us to step inside this vision of the throne word and hold the words to this song. The vision says that John, this is in Revelation 4, just after he pins the seven letters or these seven notes to these seven churches in Asia Minor. That he's given this vision of the throne room of God and there's the throne and the one who's seated on the throne and there before the throne are 24 little thrones with the 24 elders seated on those thrones and there's seven lampstands blazing. 24 thrones and little thrones. What we know is that the people of God in the beginning were called forth by God and constituted by these 12 tribes, right? And what we know is that when God in Jesus came to dwell among us and inaugurated his ministry, he called forth a community to travel with him, and he chose 12 disciples. Suggest to you that what John is seeing there in that moment are the people of God, old and new, was and is and is to come, all gathered, the 24, the complete, the fullness of the people of God, gathered before the throne of God. And there are seven lampstands blazing, which are the seven lamps of the churches that he's just addressed. Yes? Are you with me? And it also says that there as he turns and looks and sees the throne and the one seated on the throne and the 24 smaller thrones and elders and lampstands, that there is, interestingly, a sea of glass as clear as crystal. Isn't that beautiful and peaceful? You can see it, can't you? It stretches out. Love that image of the sea of glass as clear as crystal because if you've ever seen water that still and clear, you know that it reflects, right? There it is stretched out before the throne. And then it says there are these four living creatures, and he describes the four living creatures that he sees, and that day and night they never stop proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's the action here. Here John sees God seated on his throne, his sovereignty. He sees the people of God assembled. He sees the sea of glass. He sees the four living creatures who proclaim the holiness of God. And then in response, as they proclaim the holiness of God, the 24 begin to declare, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the one seated on the throne, the Lord Almighty, to receive glory and honor and so on and so forth. They proclaim God's worthiness, the living creature's holiness, and God's worthiness. So let me invite you to just 
peel back what it means to stand in the middle of this vision for a moment. Because it's not only John's vision. I think it's the gift of a vision for us. Not to describe something just something in the future, but to to describe something in the present, even now. And you'll miss this if you rush past it. Look, that sea of glass right there before the throne, the presence of water in the throne room, denotes something significant in this vision. And I'm just going to tell you what I'm fairly certain it means. Because water imagery in the story of Scripture, dating back to the origins of the creation, which we just described, hovering over the surface of the deep, the abyss, the waters, is chaos imagery. It's disconnected imagery. The abyss in the Psalms, oh, don't let us go down to the abyss because it's evil, and evil exists there, and all that is wrong and disconnected and fragmented with the world is represented by the water. Later in Revelation chapter 13, all kinds of terrible things that represent evil and chaos and destruction come up out of the water. And here it is in this throne room vision. And not only that, I kind of skipped past it, but if you were looking at the description of this throne room vision, that there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder that come around the throne. Here's what I think the vision is inviting us to say, to see, and to know. Is that as the people of God, old and new, past and present, even now, this people of God gathered together to proclaim the deepest longing of our hearts that God reign sovereign, holy, above all things, seated on the throne, before all things, and in all things, and to all things. That at the same time we declare God's holiness and sovereignty, guess what? We still stand in the midst of a lot of brokenness. And a lot of suffering. And injustice. It's present there. In the midst of this vision. In the midst of this moment. And John... So if you turn the page, and there was never chapter 5 in John's telling of this vision, but it's in chapter 5. John says, stands in the middle of all this, and he turns and he looks and he sees that the one seated on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And the scroll's important because what John knows and what I want you to know is that what that scroll represents is the resolution to this dilemma. How is it? that we declare that God is holy and sovereign and reigns over all things, and yet suffering and evil and injustice persist. And on the scroll is written the resolution to that dilemma. It's not only written on that dilemma, but the one who can open that scroll and reveal its contents enacts the resolution of that tension. So John looks, and there's the one who holds the scroll. But the scroll is completely sealed. It has seven seals. It means it's completely, fully 
sealed. And as John stands in that moment, and can you see him? He looks at the throne. He sees the one seated on the throne. He hears the song of the holy. He himself kneels at the sovereignty of God, and he looks and he sees the presence of suffering and brokenness and injustice. He stands in between all of that. He sees the, the scroll to, to, re, to resolve all of this, but it's all sealed up. And John says, I wept and I wept because no one was there who was able to open the scroll. Now, the vision goes on, but I'm going to stop right there because you don't want me to preach until 1230 or something. But I want us to stop right there because I think that I, I, I want to invite us to find our place right there with John. To sit with John in the weeping. To be moved to this place where we're not only declaring that God's holy, God's holy, but we know that we still live in the brokenness of this world and we confess that. And it's brokenness within our own selves. We who are being redeemed are yet still undone, longing for something more. Longing for something more. If we can stand with John, sit with John in that moment, we'll find that our praise, that which declares the holiness of God, comes with tears, our weeping for a world that is not yet made right, and our own undoneness in the midst of it. Almost every conversation I heard as I came in and kind of made my way around to kind of greet you was about COVID. We prayed. A big chunk of the people who usually gather here aren't here today because of this virus. Can we declare God's holiness in this moment and also weep with a world that is broken and hurting? And if you can hold those two things, not just one or the other, if you can hold those two things, I think we will know the depth of praise and adoration. We'll know what it is to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's a deep groan welling up in John in that moment. Let me say it this way, our praise proceeds from confession. In fact, the depth of our praise, I would say, that which draws us into the presence of God, makes room for the presence of God, the deepest longing of our hearts, the depth of our praise is only as deep as the depth of our confession. And that confession is not easy to come by. <coughs> we don't confess well either. Mostly because we've turned confession, we've so narrowed confession into an individual response to our own personal shortcomings. Confession is so much deeper and broader than that. Now, do I individually and personally have plenty to confess? Absolutely. But our confession is that, God, we love you and we adore you, but we live in this world and it's fragile and it's broken. We confess collectively. We don't confess well. We, we profess a lot. We like to profess a lot. I've been a professor. I like professing. 
but we don't confess well. A lot of churches flail about professing this and that, but it lacks depth, that profession. That witness that we attempt to give to the world, it lacks depth because it does not proceed from that place where John weeps with a broken world. Maybe our first move on the path to be disciples of Jesus is not only to confess and acknowledge that we are broken and in need of Jesus, but that the world is and that we will sit with the world in its brokenness and weep with the world in its brokenness. And out of that posture of weeping, declare, but God, you are holy. You are transcendent. One of the most, I'll close with this, one of the most profound prayers of confession in the witness of Scripture is found in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion, blot out my many transgressions. For I know my sin. My sin is always before me. It's the one where we pray, cleanse me, and I will be made whiter than snow. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful prayer of confession. It also has a note. It's in your Bible, a note that accompanies the song psalm that tells us about the origin of that psalm. It is a psalm of David uh, written after he is confronted by Nathan and uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The interesting thing is that it's not just David's song of confession for his own personal sin. But it's kept in the center, very near the center, of the people of God's hymn book and becomes the song, the, the song of confession for the whole people of God. David's not the only one praying the song of confession. But the people of God together are always praying this because they know that they are broken and they live in a world that is broken and that sin is not just my personal transgressions, but sin with a capital S mars the whole project. And so we pray for God's mercy for us and for the whole world. We pray declaring and trusting that God, we don't understand it all. It's a mystery. It's beyond us. You who are transcendent and other. And yet we commit ourselves to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come.